The National Constitution Center inspires active citizenship as the only place in these polarized times where people across America and around the world can come together to learn about, debate, and celebrate the greatest vision of human freedom in history, the U.S. Constitution. Please support us by becoming a member and learn more at constitutioncenter.org. I'm Jeffrey Rosen, President and CEO of the National Constitution Center, and welcome to the latest of our We the People Constitutional Podcasts. The National Constitution Center is the only institution in America chartered by Congress to disseminate information about the U.S. Constitution on a nonpartisan basis. And today we are discussing one of the most exciting and important series of constitutional issues of the year, and that is uh, challenges involving voting rights. On August 6th, the Voting Rights Act will celebrate its 50th anniversary. It was first enacted in 1965, and it's considered one of the most important pieces of civil rights legislation in American history. Uh, The Voting Rights Act codifies and enforces the 15th Amendment's guarantee that no American citizen shall be denied the right to vote on account of race or color. In 2013, in the Shelby County and Holder case, the Supreme Court struck down Section 4 of the Act. Uh, Section 4 established a formula to determine which jurisdictions would have to get federal approval for changes in their election law. The court said that formula was unconstitutional in light of improved conditions in those previously covered areas. And ever since that case came down, there have been a series of uh, new laws uh, respecting elections and also lawsuits challenging these new election regulations. In fact, uh, as we record this podcast, there's a trial underway in North Carolina to determine whether a law passed less than two months after the Shelby County case is a violation of the 14th Amendment, the 15th Amendment, or the Voting Rights Act. Joining me to discuss the Voting Rights Act and these new cases are two superb scholars, the world experts on election law. Rick Hassan is the Chancellor's Professor of Law and Political Science at the University of California, Irvine School of Law. He's an expert in election and campaign finance law and the author of the authoritative election law blog. Derek Muller is Associate Professor of Law at the Pepperdine University School of Law. He, too, is a renowned expert in election law and the author of another great blog, Excess of Democracy. Uh, Welcome, gentlemen. And, Rick, let us jump right into this and begin with you. Can you give us some detail on the law that North Carolina passed? It's called HB 589. Um, What does it provide? And what are the legal arguments against it? Sure. Well, uh, just to uh, back up for a moment, the um, North Carolina, before the Supreme Court's decision in the Shelby County versus Holder case, was a state that was partially covered under the preclearance provisions you mentioned. And so that, uh, what that meant was that uh, before the Shelby County decision, if North Carolina wanted to make a statewide change to any of its voting rules, anything as small as moving a polling place to as large as a uh, 10-year redistricting plan, it had to get approval from either the U.S. Department of Justice or a three-judge federal court in D.C. Uh, and to get approval, it would have to demonstrate that the changes that it would make in its voting rules would not make minority voters worse off. That was the old standard, and that standard seemed to stop places like North Carolina from enacting laws like the law that's at issue in the current lawsuit, in part because the burden of proof would be on the state of North Carolina to show that the changes wouldn't be worse, and in part because it uh, included what uh, we call a non-retrogression standard, the idea that the changes cannot make protected minority voters worse off. Once the Shelby County decision passed, we saw a number of states pass laws that uh, seemed to make it harder to register and to vote. Uh, North Carolina's law, I think, is probably the most comprehensive, certainly the most um, restrictive of any single law that I've seen passed anywhere, I'd say, since the passage of the 1965 Voting Rights Act. Among other things, it imposed a new voter identification requirement, It eliminated same-day voter registration. It eliminated pre-registration for 16- and 17-year-olds where they were still in high school, so they'd be ready to vote when they turned 18. It uh, cut back on uh, early voting 
Uh, those were the, the primary things uh, that were done. Uh, the law was challenged in both federal court and state court. There was an attempt to get a preliminary injunction uh, before the 2014 elections to stop some of these provisions from going into place. The voter ID law already was not going to be used in the 2014 election. It was put on hold until 2016. The uh, district court refused to uh, enjoin or prevent these uh, provisions from going into effect for the 2014 election. The United States Court of Appeals for the Fourth Circuit reversed that as to two aspects of the law and said that these provisions violated or likely violated part of the Voting Rights Act that, that still applies here, which is Section 2. Then the Supreme Court reversed that. And now we're at a place where uh, there's a trial. And as you mentioned, the claims are both constitutional claims, that these laws make it uh, 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 too difficult to vote under the Equal Protection Clause of the 14th Amendment, and also that the laws violate Section 2 of the Voting Rights Act. Section 2 is a provision where the burden of proof is on the plaintiffs. They bring a challenge. They're, they have to show uh, not that minority voters are worse off, the, the standard under Section 5, but that looking at the law as a whole, minority voters have less opportunity than others to participate in the political process and to elect representatives of their choice. That's a standard that's been applied a lot in redistricting cases. It's caused the creation of many majority-minority uh, voting districts, districts where minority voters could elect representatives of their choice. It's so far been less successful in challenging these so-called vote denial claims, claims that uh, the laws have made things harder to register and to, uh, and to vote. That kind of claim was just rejected in Wisconsin in a federal suit against Wisconsin's voter ID law. And so now we're at trial and we're going to see how things go. The last thing I'd say is that the voter ID portion of this is on hold because on the eve of trial, North Carolina announced changes to its voter ID law, which are going to make it easier for people to vote without having the requisite ID. And so that aspect of the case will be decided at a later point. Thank you, Rick, for that very helpful and comprehensive uh, introduction. Uh, Derek, can you add anything that you'd like to Rick's uh, introduction and then hone in on this question of Section 2 of the Voting Rights Act. That says that uh, the question is whether a challenged electoral device um, makes it harder for minorities to participate in the political process or elect representatives of their choice. And here the challengers are saying that these voter uh, ID and other requirements do have the effect of making it harder for minority candidates to win. North Carolina counters that there's no evidence that minority participation has actually declined in the wake of these provisions. How did this play out, and what do you think is the correct interpretation of Section 2? Right, yeah, I think yeah, Rick hit the highlights about how Section 2 differs from Section 5 and sort of the novelty of its application in some recent years to some of these vote denial cases. That is, I think it was easier to view these Section 2 claims more as, well, how can minority voters participate in the political process if they are consistently voting for candidates who continually lose? And this idea of drawing districts to help empower minority voters was a very useful way of implementing Section 2. But now, given the Shelby County and given the decline of Section 5, uh, courts are starting to interpret Section 2 a little more robustly as litigants bring challenges under Section 2 in an attempt to sort of revitalize some of the challenges they might have had under Section 5. So as the Fourth Circuit um, has recently tried to carve out a test under Section 2 in light of the vote denial claims and saying, well, we're looking for two different things. We're looking at whether or not you have some standard or practice um, that imposes a discriminatory burden on members of a protected class, right? And th that burden is, is that they have less of an opportunity than other members of the electorate to participate in the political process and elect representatives of their choice. And the burden has to be caused or linked to social and historical conditions that have or currently produce discrimination against members of the protected class. So they're trying to figure out on the, sort of the totality of the circumstances whether or not the provisions of this law 
really burden um, minority voters in the state of North Carolina. And so a couple of the provisions at issue are uh, particularly early voting, the opportunity to cast ballots uh, at a polling place before Election Day, um, and the opportunity for same-day voter registration. So a lot of states have a 30-day window. You have to register to vote well in advance of the election. Um, the Supreme Court has said 30 days is sort of an acceptable period of time for that. And then you show up on Election Day and you cast your ballot. And in some jurisdictions, the, the, the window is a little bit shorter. But there are lots of places that have increasingly implemented some of these devices, such as same-day voter registration, to say you don't have to do it in advance. If you want to vote, you can show up at the polls. That's what North Carolina did several years ago. And they implemented 17 days of early voting several years ago to provide more opportunities to vote. Well, a couple of years ago, they changed those laws, and the legislature in North Carolina repealed those provisions. And the question is whether or not that repeal ends up burdening minority voters uh, that they such that they have less opportunity. And so part of it's a baseline problem. Part of it is, you know, these opportunities didn't even exist before. And once they're created, um, is it ever possible to take them away? And another is sort of an evidentiary problem that um, there's some evidence that minority voter turnout actually increased in the last election. Well, we have to control perhaps for some other factors and try to figure out what was the reason for voter turnout? Uh, why was the voter turnout the way it was in this past election? Would it have been higher if we didn't have the repeal of these kinds of provisions? If we had more voter days, would minority voter turnout have been even higher? And so these are the questions we're trying to figure out. Was there truly less of an opportunity, and what evidence do we have for those claims? Rick, do you think that the North Carolina law violates Section 2? The Fourth Circuit relied on the fact that minorities disproportionately participate in same-day registration. There's past discrimination against them. There's racially polarized voting, expert testimony that minorities lag behind in areas of education and so forth. Uh, Do you agree with the Fourth Circuit or not? Well, I think that it's a very difficult question. And uh, the question of how you apply this Section 2 standard uh, to claims not uh, involving redistricting, but to these vote denial claims, uh, raises both questions of causation. Uh, is it because of the law that minorities have less uh, opportunity to participate in the political process, and how is that connected perhaps to prior discrimination? Uh, but also conceptual questions. And, and uh, Derek mentions one of the difficult conceptual questions, which is, um, if there's no right, say, to early voting, as either as a constitutional matter or as a matter of, of Section 2, then if the state offers it and takes it away or partially takes it away, does that show enough evidence of an intent or enough evidence of causation under an effects test to, to show that uh, this is uh, a, a violation? Uh, if it's just that you can point to a correlation, that might render the law so broad as to be unconstitutional, at least as the uh, Supreme Court understands it. And so I think it's a difficult question. It's one that the uh, Seventh Circuit in the Wisconsin case, looking at the voter ID law, divided five to five on the scope of the law. I think uh, there's, there are plausible arguments we made on both sides about what Section 2 requires and how to apply it in this context. And ultimately, I think these issues will end up getting resolved by the United States Supreme Court. Derek, is there any case that these North Carolina restrictions were intended to discriminate against African Americans and reduce their turnout? And if so, would that be a clear violation of Section 2, or is intent not important? Uh, right. So as far as I know, there's no smoking gun sort of in the legislative record, right? The legislature is saying we just don't want African Americans to vote, and so we're cutting these days down, right? Um, a lot of these things happen uh, either whether or not it's an overtly partisan basis, that some people think that particular voting devices advantage one political party or another, but then that can get wrapped up in the fact that uh, certain racial groups tend to vote for certain political parties, and then maybe race and party are intertwined in some regard. Uh, There are other instances where there are some legitimate reasons, right? We are worried about the cost of having all these polling places open for 17 days, so we're just going to cut it back to 10 days, right? Or uh, we're worried that our that the same-day voter registration is really not used by very many people. It's used by some, but uh, they have plenty of other opportunities, and we just don't think that this is the kind of device that is really useful given perhaps some very small remote risk of fraud that might occur from people showing up on the very day and casting a provisional ballot and maybe trying to figure out some way around the system. So I think 
there are some costs, right? And there are some worries what how legitimate those are is up for debate. I think there's some evidence that they might be motivated by partisanship. There there might be some evidence that there uh, is some racial issue lurking in the background. But until there's that smoking gun, it becomes very difficult to articulate the sort of causation issue. It becomes very difficult to say, this is what the legislature actually intended. It was actually uh, burdening these groups in an intentional way. And so that's why I think one of the advantages about some of the tests is trying to move away from that and just looking at the effects on the group and whether or not the minority group has been uh, disproportionately impacted by the scope of the law. And that's where I think a lot of these causation issues uh, become much harder to identify. Rick, what do you think about the smoke and gun question? Um, after the bill was uh, proposed, a North Carolina Senator Josh Stein, who was a Democrat, uh, saw the bill and he posted a summary on it. He said, if anyone has any doubt about the bill's intent to suppress voters, all he or she has to do is read it. And then he talked about what the bill does. And Democrats during the debate said that there was a clear intent to suppress minority participation. Uh, do you agree? Well, what, I, I think that there's no question that this bill was passed with a at least a partisan intent. The pattern we've seen uh, across the United States is that it's been Republican-dominated uh, legislatures that have been passing laws that make it harder to register and harder to vote. I, I, and I, I think that the fraud and confidence and efficiency arguments that are made by the um, state of North Carolina are really a pretext for what looks like an attempt uh, at partisanship. And what I'd say is that if you can shrink the electorate and particularly make it harder for those who are likely to vote for uh, Democrats to be able to register and vote, that could give a marginal advantage to Republicans. And similarly, we see in Democratic states, attempts to make it easier to register and vote and attempt to expand the electorate in ways that help the Democratic Party. So this is, I think, a pretty clear indication of, uh, of a partisan type of election law. That's different, though, than saying that the law violates either the Constitution or uh, Section 2 of the Voting Rights Act. Uh, under, the, under my preferred interpretation of the um, Constitution, I would say that if you pass an election law with, uh, uh, without providing any legitimate uh, reason backed by evidence for uh, making it harder for people to register and vote, that should be a violation of the Equal Protection Clause. But that's not what the Supreme Court has said. And, and further, I agree with Derek that showing a partisan intent doesn't necessarily show a racial intent, which could violate the Voting Rights Act and the Constitution, in part this race or party question, as I've written at the Harvard Law Review Forum, is, a, is, is an odd question to ask, given the tremendous overlap of the race and party categories, particularly in North Carolina and other parts of the South. Uh, so we may be in a situation where we know the law was passed to try to help Republicans. We know it may have a disparate impact on Democratic voters who tend to be minorities. But yet, because of the state of our uh, election law, this would be neither a violation of the Constitution uh, nor uh, a, a violation of the Voting Rights Act. And so, so that tells me uh, that there's something wrong with the way we're interpreting those, those, uh, the constitutional provision in that law. Derek, what is your preferred interpretation of the Constitution and the Voting Rights Act? Uh, Rick just said he thinks that if you make it harder to vote without a good reason, that should violate the Equal Protection Clause. And yet on the other side of the spectrum, uh, Justice Clarence Thomas and others have suggested that Section 2 of the Voting Rights Act might itself be unconstitutional to the degree that it requires uh, race consciousness to maximize minority voter participation. Do you agree with Justice Thomas? Um, so I think Justice Thomas is particularly speaking in the area of drawing districts, right, and the idea that we're being very uh, conscious about the race of individuals uh, within districts when we're drawing them. And so there are, there are provisions and interpretations that might make that uh, a more challenging constitutional question of, of being conscious about race uh, pursuant to the Constitution. Um, but in terms of the impact on minorities, I think it's a little bit easier of a constitutional call to say that to the extent that Section 2 speaks to vote denial and speaks more generally about the opportunity for sort of all races to participate equally, um, you know, I, I'm much more convinced that Section 2 certainly has a constitutional, uh, is constitutional. 
and would extend to protect minority voters simply because, much like the 15th Amendment, which speaks in terms of race, we're speaking sort of in a neutral way. We want to make sure that all groups, of, regardless of their ethnicity or color, have the opportunity to participate in the political process. Um, here, I think we, our real problem is sort of trying to figure out what that burden looks like. Right? There's no question that cutting early voting from 17 days to 10 days has an impact. There's no question that some people who might have wanted to vote on that first day now don't have that opportunity, and they will have to vote on the 11th day uh, through the 17th day or whatever it might be. Uh, but, but there's this question of what kind of an impact does that really have? Does that mean the person can't go vote? Well, they've, there's been very little evidence about whether or not people can't go vote as a result of it. Is it a little bit harder for some people? It might be. Is it actually keeping people away from the polling place? That's where we get into some of the data and the more circumstantial evidence, trying to figure out through regression analysis whether or not it impacted voters and whether or not these laws were the ones that impacted certain groups of voters over others. And at the same time, it's kind of trying to prove some things in a vacuum. You're trying to find the people who were unable to navigate the system and whether or not those people will be able to come forward and uh, speak to the court and provide the evidence necessary to figure out whether or not this actually burdened some of those voters. So there are a lot of complicated causation issues coming out of sort of the evidentiary questions that, that we're seeing in this North Carolina trial. Rick, how high should the standard be to prove that there's a burden on minority voters? The Fourth Circuit said that minorities disproportionately use uh, measures like early voting. They move around more often. They tend to have less aspect of transportation and are less likely to be registered. Um, and uh, Therefore, there was a burden. And Justice Ginsburg, dissenting from the Supreme Court's order to allow the law to go into effect, said this was a reasonable conclusion. The fact that minority turnout increased in the most recent election shouldn't be dispositive. Um, how, how high should the burden be? Well, you know, the language of Section 2 itself talks about uh, looking at the uh, totality of the circumstances that you could say that, that overall minority voters have less opportunity than others to participate in the political process and to elect representatives of their choice. And those words were deliberately crafted by Congress as a kind of compromise uh, to try and find a middle road. And it's been the way that the courts have been Parsing that language over the years that has that that, is, you know, that has really divided a, a more expansive from a more restrictive view of the Voting Rights Act. As I said, my my preferred way of looking at this is because of the causation problems that are raised. I would say, if a state is going to put new burdens on voters, then it should have to justify it. And I'm not just talking about minority voters; I'm talking about all voters. Um, it should have to justify it and come up with a, a, a non-pretextual, that is not, not a fake after-the-fact reason, but a real reason supported by actual evidence uh, that would justify the restrictions. So what's the reason for eliminating, say, Sunday voting in places where that has been done by Republican legislatures after there's evidence that African-American voters have been organizing souls to the polls, uh, buses to go from church rights to go to early voting? Well, explain, what is it a cost savings? Is that the argument? So it seems to me that a lot of these arguments that are raised by the state as to why they need to impose new burdens on voters are, are kind of pretextual. But it does raise the problem that, that uh, Derek mentioned earlier, which is this kind of one-way ratchet or retrogression issue. If we say that once a state offers an additional benefit to voters, it can't take it away, well, that might discourage some states from experimenting and offering new benefits to voters. And so we kind of have to craft some kind of baseline, some kind of uh, range within which states can uh, uh, make changes to their voting laws. And precisely where that is, I think, is part of the struggle that's going on in this case and, in, and, in, and some of the other cases that are pending. Uh, Derek, where would you draw the line, and how would you interpret uh, s Section 2? Yeah, I, th I think Rick has a, a, a an interesting and, and very useful test, at least to the extent that legislatures are sort of uh, on notice, right? I think uh, sometimes legislatures are not necessarily as aware about some of the uh, evidence that they may need to provide, or sometimes the evidence might be a little bit conflicted as to what they're doing. And there's also this question, which Rick has alluded to, about partisanship and whether or not partisanship is even a legitimate basis for making some of these laws. And we sort of accept it, and the Supreme Court has been very reluctant to intervene in these kinds of disputes. 
We recognize that people, uh, that legislatures tend to enact a lot of laws for partisan advantage in one way or another. And that can be a very messy sort of area in terms of the evidence that they're not really doing it for race. They're doing it for party reasons, but maybe they have to come up with a better reason or some financial accounting to explain why they're cutting it down. Um, so I think it might be useful to provide a little bit more clear notice for legislatures about the kind of evidence they need to provide and for them to build up the kind of record necessary to establish that these are legitimate reasons, that they have some legitimate fraud prevention concern or some legitimate cost savings concern or that there are ample and adequate opportunities elsewhere. And these have come out in the political process. There's been bargaining in, in places like Ohio and, and uh, South Carolina and some jurisdictions that have instituted some new rules to prevent fraud or to cut costs in elections. And it has, through good faith negotiations in the political process, they've managed to reach some bargains in some circumstances uh, to avoid impacting minority or poor voters uh, while at the same time maintaining the kinds of things that they want to accomplish. So, uh, you know, a lot comes out of the political process. It's just that in those instances when the political process breaks down, what kind of evidence should the courts be looking at? What kind of evidence do they need in order to establish uh, the, the sort of burden that's placed upon the voters? Rick, let's begin to think about how the Supreme Court might think about these questions. When the court upheld the Voting Rights Act in South Carolina and Katzenbach during the 1960s, it was an eight-to-one decision, and Justice Hugo Black dissented. He said that uh, allowing uh, this sort of federal supervision of state elections would violate the state's rights to uh, enact laws governing the time, place, and manner of holding elections. That didn't get a lot of attention at the time, but right now people are resurrecting that dissent arguing that if you do say that uh, eliminating same-day registration violates Section 2 of the Voting Rights Act, that too would threaten the constitutionality of states to enact laws governing the time, place, and manner of holding elections. What do you make of the argument that the Voting Rights Act, as interpreted by the plaintiffs in this case, conflicts with the constitutional authority of the states to regulate time, place, and manner? Yeah, well, first of all, I don't think... uh, When Justice Black was writing back in 1966 in South Carolina versus Katzenbach, what he was objecting to was the preclearance provision. And I think... Preclearance was uh, what the majority called back then in 1966 strong medicine because it said you couldn't pass, uh, uh, you know, even moving a polling place from one side of the street to the other if you were a state without um, getting federal permission. And he saw that as, uh, as quite strict. Uh, I don't think that Section 2 uh, is quite as strict. Again, the burden, there's no preclearance requirement. The burden is on the challengers. It's not on the state to, to, to prove a negative or anything like that. It's applied equally across all the states, so we don't have a problem of what the Supreme Court in the 2013 Shelby County case, which struck down the, the um, formula for preclearance uh, under Section 5 of the Voting Rights Act. Uh, we don't have a problem of equal sovereignty where uh, some states are treated differently than others. And uh, so, so I don't think that time, place, and manner is implicated. And in fact, at the end of the court's term, right, right at the very end uh, in June, the Supreme Court rejected a challenge coming out of Kansas and Arizona to a federal law that requires states to accept f- federal forms for voter registration, even though those forms do not require voters to turn in documentary evidence of their citizenship. So this was uh, one of these fights. And, and the, the federal government relied on the Elections Clause, which gives Congress the power to set the rules for uh, congressional elections. So at least on the congressional side, as opposed to the state side, I think Congress is well within its powers uh, to regulate here. But if we're just thinking more broadly about what's going to happen at the Supreme Court, I expect that uh, if the challenge to North Carolina will actually be in line behind the challenge to Texas's voter identification law. So back but just before the uh, 2014 elections, a federal district court judge issued a very long opinion. I think it was about 140 pages. In that opinion, the judge found that Texas's voter ID law not only violated the Equal Protection Clause and the Voting Rights Act, but was passed with a racially discriminatory intent. Uh, and the judge uh, Uh, held the voter ID law could not uh, be used any longer. Uh, The Supreme Court allowed the voter ID law over Justice Ginsburg's dissent to be used for the 2014 elections while the appeal was pending, I think on the theory that you don't change the rules right before the election. But 
Uh, we are in a period where the uh, the regular appeal is being heard now. It, there was already an oral argument before the United States Court of Appeals for the Fifth Circuit, and I think this tees up the case for Supreme Court review before the 2016 elections. And so I think it's very likely, particularly if the Fifth Circuit up, uh, 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 upholds the uh, the trial court's decision to block the uh, voter ID law, that, that this case is going to go up to the Supreme Court. We're going to get more on uh, this question of racial versus partisan intent, and that's ultimately going to affect what ends up happening both in North Carolina as well in other states that I think have been waiting to see what happens in Texas and North Carolina before they make changes to their voting rules. Uh, Derek, tell us about how you think the Supreme Court might approach the Texas case in 2008. In the Crawford case, the court held that an Indiana law requiring voters to provide photo ID did not violate the Constitution. Justice John Paul Stevens uh, voted with the conservatives there. How, how might the Texas case differ from that case, and uh, how, how are the justices likely to come down? Yeah, so it's interesting to think that uh, Crawford was really seven years ago. Right? There were very few voter identification laws in place then. The handful that were there were um, you know, uh, relatively minor in terms of, I think, the burden placed upon voters, I think, generally, largely speaking. Um, some, uh, most of them now are voter IDs that require photo identification. Many of them have much more stringent requirements in terms of the kinds of documents that can, that can be used. Um, and there's sometimes conflicting evidence in different jurisdictions about the burden it places on voters. So Georgia's law many years ago was enacted, and they were able to present evidence that minority voters were probably more likely to have the kinds of identification required by the law. In South Carolina, it was ultimately pre-cleared when they were still subject to voting rights pre-clearance, in part because of a large, uh, a large amount of bargaining among the parties to make sure that the voter identification law did pass muster. Um, one of the problems with Texas's voter law is that it's a bit more restrictive uh, than some of the other laws that are in place. Uh, it, for instance, I, I believe it permits uh, gun permits, but does not allow college identification, for for instance, among the kinds of identification that would uh, allow you to cast a ballot. So in North Carolina, they're currently, uh, so the assembly just passed a law that the governor will likely sign, making it a little bit easier. Have wide bar bipartisan support to say, if your ID has been expired for the last four years, you can use it. If you don't have your ID, you can um, you can file a declaration and provide some identification later on at a different point in time or find some other way of proving your identity. Um, so ways of alleviating the burden. Texas, is, I think, is interesting because despite the language in Indiana, uh, in Indiana's case in Crawford, which spoke very generally that the burden was relatively low and there were many legitimate interests from the state, uh, I think the question is what kind of evidence do we have here? And in Texas, at least, there was some more overt evidence that it was racially motivated or some more overt evidence uh, that the burdens were much higher than they were in other jurisdictions. And so uh, the last time I was administered this past election, there didn't seem to be too many problems. But again, this is sort of an evidentiary issue that we're going to see before the court. We're going to have to examine uh, whether or not the, the record here establishes that the burden was so significant that it really ends up being a violation of the rights of minority voters to participate in the political process. Rick, take us through the positions of the various justices when it comes to the Texas challenge. Uh, and, and I want our listeners to understand the difference between how the conservative and more liberal justices approach Section 2 and how that might affect the way they look at uh, voter ID law challenges. Well, um, I think it's fair to say that the uh, liberal justices have a more expansive view of Section 2 of the Voting Rights Act than the uh, conservative justices. That's evident in cases that, for example, talk about what you have to prove in order to be able to require the creation of a majority-minority district or a minority-opportunity district or minority-influence district. But the interesting question in Texas might actually be a different one, which is uh, how much evidence do you need to show of a uh, discriminatory intent to justify the, um, uh, the blocking of this ID law. Because in the Texas case, uh, uh, there's a finding that this was passed with a racially discriminatory intent. And I think all the justices, even the most conservative justices on the court, would agree that if a law is passed, a voting law is passed with a racially discriminatory intent, that it's unconstitutional. And so I think there's going to be a big battle 
uh, when this gets to the Supreme Court over how do you prove that there's a racially discriminatory intent. And the, that's why I said earlier that I think the court's going to have to grapple with this question of what if your intent is partisan rather than racial, and how do these things overlap? In, the, in, in a recent brief that Texas filed in a registration case, Texas said, look, our intention was partisan, uh, even if it had an incidental effect on minority voters, uh, as though these were two separate things. And I, I think that's an artificial uh, way of thinking about it. But I think much is going to turn on the question uh, of intent. And there's even more writing on that question than just the, uh, question, than just the issue of whether Texas's voter uh, ID law is going to remain in place. The Department of Justice, the United States Department of Justice, in both the Texas case and in the North Carolina case, using them as test cases, is trying not only to get their laws struck down as violating the Voting Rights Act or the Constitution, but they are also making the claim that there's enough evidence of intentional racial discrimination so that they can invoke a rarely used part of the Voting Rights Act, Section 3, which requires that, uh, uh, or which allows courts that have found intentional racial discrimination in voting to put preclearance back in for up to 10 years. And so if Texas is found and it's upheld by the Supreme Court to be an intentional discriminator on the basis of race and voting, Texas could be back under the preclearance provision. And, and this would, I think, get around at least one of the Shelby County questions, which is where's the evidence of current conditions showing racial discrimination. And so there's a huge issue in the background in this case, and that's what I'm really going to be watching as the Texas case works its way up. Wonderful. On this superbly substantive podcast, we've talked about Section 2 of the Voting Rights Act, the 14th and 15th Amendments, and now we're up to Section 3. I'm so glad you brought it up, Rick. As you suggested, uh, Section 3 is a bail-in provision, and if there's evidence of intentional racial discrimination, then a state... Uh, uh, bails in, which means it has to submit to preclearance again. It's only been invoked 18 times in the last four decades, but it's recently being invoked not only in Texas by the Department of Justice, but also a Native American tribal group in Alaska has uh, requested bail in, and there's a Montana case as well. And the North Carolina uh, challengers have also asked for the state to be bailed in. Uh, Derek, uh, what do you think of the arguments that in Texas and North Carolina, both states should be bailed back in to federal preclearance because their laws are intended to discriminate against minorities. Well, I, one of the things that bail-in permits is uh, some judicial flexibility in the remedy. Right? It's judicial oversight, and uh, there is uh, not some of the uh, more draconian provisions that Section 4 and Section 5 had. So to the extent that a state is a bad actor or that there's enough evidence there that the state legislature or uh, some political subdivision had that racially discriminatory intent, um, then it is sort of within the purview of the judiciary to step in and manage the election and make sure that uh, laws are passed in such a manner that don't discriminate against those minority groups. So yeah, Section 3 has been underutilized, and I suppose in a sense Section 2 has been as well because of the strength of Section 5 for such a long period of time. And now after Shelby County, we're starting to see uh, more novel uh, constructions or more aggressive uh, interpretations of some of these other provisions that had not been used as uh, frequently in the past. So I, I agree with Rick. I, I think it'll be very interesting to see what kind of evidence of intent the court views as uh, salient in a case like Texas. And viewing intent will really fuel some of these Section 3 challenges going forward and whether or not we're going to see uh, more jurisdictions tailored uh, to the jurisdictions that have enough intent, uh, whether or not those jurisdictions will start falling under Section 3's coverage. Rick, this is, of course, a We the People constitutional podcast. If there were sufficient evidence of racially discriminatory intent under Section 3, would that also mean that the challenge practices violate the 14th and 15th Amendment to the Constitution? Tell our listeners about the relationship between discriminatory intent and a constitutional violation. Well, uh, it, it, it actually, if you back up and you talk about where Section 2 of the Voting Rights Act in its current form comes from, it comes from uh, uh, a, a response to a Supreme Court decision, a case called City of Mobile versus Bolden, which was uh, decided in the early 1980s. In that case, the Supreme Court said if you're going to challenge a um, voting practice as diluting the power of minority voters, in this case, it was the use of an at-large voting system where everyone in the whole city of Mobile got to vote for all the 
the members of the city council, and, and whites always outvoted the African-Americans in the town, and there were never any African-Americans on the city council. In that case, City of Mobile versus Bolden, the court said you must prove both discriminatory intent and effect uh, in order to prove a constitutional violation. Uh, what Section 2 of the Voting Rights Act uh, passed in 1982 in response to the Mobile case did was get rid of the requirement to prove intent to bring one of these vote dilution types of challenges. If there is, in fact, evidence of both intent and effect, then you have a violation of both Section 2 of the Voting Rights Act, potentially, and also the 14th Amendment, and presumably the 15th Amendment as well, although our law on the 15th Amendment is much less developed than it is under the 14th Amendment. Uh, Derek, uh it's possible, as both of you have described existing law, that the Supreme Court might hold that although these laws may have uh, a discriminatory effect in, in suppressing minority turnout, they still don't violate uh, Section 2 or the Constitution. Um, is that uh, correct that that might happen? And if, if that's true, is that uh, fair? Well, I, yeah, I think so because of, as Rick pointed out, because of Mobile, there is a a, a longstanding under, uh, interpretation of the Reconstruction Amendments, at least in, in recent memory and probably adhered to more by the conservative justices in the court. That they're primarily targeting uh, intentional discrimination, and there might be some instances where a discriminatory impact or a discriminatory effect might fall under them. It's, it's generally about discriminatory intent. And uh, the Voting Rights Act targets some intent as well, but as we've noted, Section 2 has this effects test as well. So relying solely on disparate impact or the impact that it has on minority voters might raise uh, some more new constitutional challenges to the effect that some conservatives in the court might be more inclined to reconsider whether or not Congress has the power to enact that kind of a statute that extends beyond uh, sort of the scope of the 14th and 15th Amendments, whether or not their powers under the Reconstruction Amendments uh, move beyond just the things that the text requires or allows for some broader impact, such as uh, preventing just discriminatory impact on minority groups. But I, I don't know. I, I don't know that the court necessarily has the stomach for that, although they did strike down Section 4 recently, so maybe they would. Uh, at the same time, there is something to be said now. The court has upheld interpretations of Section 2 for a long time, and virtually all of the justices in the Supreme Court agree, uh, that we can consider sort of the impact on minority voters. If we're drawing district lines and we recognize that a lot of minority groups uh, could more effectively participate in the political process, even if we didn't intend to keep them out of the political process, then we ought to provide those opportunities. And that longstanding interpretation of Section 2 and looking at the effects, I, I imagine, will, will continue on uh, even in Texas's uh, examination. Uh, Rick, after the Shelby County case came down, uh, civil rights icons like John Lewis called it a devastating defeat and said it was faithless both to the history of Reconstruction and the intention of the Voting Rights Act. Was that hyperbolic or, or true? And broadly, do the Texas and North Carolina cases that we've been talking about uh, vindicate the criticisms of Shelby County or prove that they were overstated? Well, I, you know, I think that as with much of this area of the law, you can read things the way you want to see them. So on the one hand, um, uh, have we seen states return to the era of Jim Crow? Uh, no. Uh, things are different in the South, as the majority uh, said in the uh, Shelby County uh, decision. On the other hand, uh, Justice Ginsburg in her dissent was surely right when she said that uh, uh, it's impossible to tell whether a law is serving an effect of being a deterrent when the law is already in place. It's just like you're putting an umbrella away because you're not getting wet in the rain. And uh, I think what happened in North Carolina uh, and what happened in Texas immediately putting its law into effect after it had been blocked under Section 5 by both the Department of Justice and a three-judge court in Washington, D.C., demonstrates that there's an interest in passing more restrictive voting laws. Now, we could argue about whether they have a racially discriminatory effect or not, but these laws were passed in these places. We're seeing a lot of stuff happening on the local level that never would have happened that I think is making it harder for people to register and to vote. Now, uh, uh, to me, that mostly vindicates the position of the dissenters, but I think you can read it and say, 
Uh, what's happened is not the, what we had before 1965, and therefore uh, uh, Chief Justice Roberts was right that things have changed in the South. So I think part of it depends on your lens and how willing you are to see restrictions on voters generally as a form of race discrimination. Uh, Derek, what is your lens on this question? Do you think that the Texas and North Carolina laws vindicate or call into question the criticisms of Shelby County? Yeah, I think it's it's interesting because Texas and North Carolina, I, d- despite sort of a fixated attention on the laws of those legislatures, I think first Rick is right that there are a lot of things happening at the local level that might not necessarily get the kind of attention uh, that other people might have recognized in an era of preclearance, right? So there were over half a million uh, voting changes that had to be pre-cleared by the Department of Justice. And we don't hear about most of them because most of them are innocuous, right? Or many of them happen at the local level. And so I think that is a a challenge, questioning whether or not uh, things at the local level have really changed in a way. And I think uh, in the future, we'll figure out whether or not uh, circumstances have changed sufficiently or whether or not there are problems in those jurisdictions. Um, A second thing to consider is while there are these controversies in Texas and in North Carolina, they're hardly alone. In places like Ohio and Pennsylvania, there's also a lot of litigation about similar issues and changes to election laws and voter identification laws. Um, And Ohio and Pennsylvania weren't covered under the old Section 5 regime. They were uh, perfectly free and clear to enact laws in some ways very similar to what's happening in Texas and North Carolina. And maybe there's less evidence of racial intent, so maybe that vindicates the dissent in Shelby County, or maybe there's simply more attention to Texas and North Carolina because of the history of racial discrimination, and less attention to places that have not had it but are implementing uh, similar rules, uh, similar laws, with some at least purportedly similar reasons, and aren't facing the same kind of scrutiny. Uh, They're facing certainly litigation challenges and the Equal Protection Clause or other provisions of the Constitution, but aren't necessarily facing the kind of post-Shelby County fallout simply because they were never pre-cleared before. So I think John Lewis is understandably upset. I, you know, he was certainly a hero marching it in, in uh, Alabama and viewing his involvement in that case and viewing what the Voting Rights Act did, and particularly in the 60s, the the tremendous impact that it had on our voting system, particularly in the South for African-Americans who had been systematically disenfranchised. Um, But then you have to view it through the lens of today, 50 years later, and trying to figure out, um, is this kind of law that's still needed? Is a version of this law still needed? And, And where can we go from here in terms of trying to protect the right to vote while allowing sort of other legitimate concerns, whether it's cost or whether fraud prevention or whatever it might be, to remain in place. Wonderful. Well, it's time, gentlemen, for closing arguments. Uh, Rick, uh, the first one is to you. What is at stake in the North Carolina case uh, constitutionally and uh, as a matter of uh, the Voting Rights Act? uh, And how do you expect the Supreme Court to rule if it decides to take the case? Well, closing argument sounds like Derek and I have had more of an argument than we have. I think that we we probably agree on more than we disagree. You do. Uh, with a, di- a difference in emphasis. Uh, but what I'd say is that um, uh, I would like to shift the discussion uh, towards a question of the burden on voters. And I think with the overlap of race and party, the court is just going to, Supreme Court is likely to get itself mired in all kinds of doctrinal pretzels trying to figure out uh, how to. I guess that's a terrible mixed metaphor. Uh, but it, it's going to tie itself in knots, uh, trying to figure out how to figure out uh, the uh, right intent of the legislature and whether this is about race or party. When I think the real question is, uh, has the state offered a good reason to burden uh, voters? Has the state offered a good reason to make it harder for people to register and vote? I would uh, hope that at this point uh, in our democracy, we could all agree that making it easier to register and vote is something that is good for everyone and uh, the courts could provide a backstop to make sure that that happens. Uh, I, it's not what I predict the court will do. I think they will get uh, tied up in their knots, but it's what I think the court should do. Great. Well, Derek, it has been a wonderfully civil debate, but, but I'll ask you uh, whether you agree uh, with Rick that uh, the North Carolina law has not made it easier for people to vote, and that should be the right test. And then more broadly, what is at stake in the North Carolina case, and how do you expect the Supreme Court to vote if it takes the case? Yeah, I, I think I, I largely agree, but I, I would have a different emphasis. I, I think I'm interested more in sort of the, the ratchet problem. That is, once a state experiments in a way or passes a law in such a way that uh, makes it 
a little bit easier to get to the polling place, because I think there's no question that having 17 days of early voting makes it a little bit easier than 10 days of early voting. Um, then, then what would ever allow the state to ratchet that back, right, to 10 days of early voting or something like that? Uh, if it has same-day registration and then says, no, we'd prefer registration to take place at least seven days before the election or something like that. I, I think one of way of looking at that is really the question on the burden of the voters. But I, I'm a little bit more interested in, well, what lets the state do that in the first place? Well, well to the extent that they're going to enact this kind of a law and want to experiment and put it back, I guess we're worried about the burden on the voters. But I think I'm more interested in whether or not it's going to have an actual impact on the ability to vote. There are lots of things that can make it harder or easier to vote, how many polling places you have or how far you have to go or however many hours open the polling place might be. And things might make it a little bit harder or a little bit easier. But I guess I'm more interested in whether or not it actually denies somebody the right to vote. And that's a very hard evidentiary issue. And where I, I guess I tend to defer to the politicians who are going to make some of these decisions to the extent that we can't prove much uh, in terms of direct impact. And maybe that's too generous in some regards, but to the extent that we're going to start striking down state laws, perhaps we want to have a little bit more of an evidentiary burden in place before we're concerned about striking down some of these other election-related provisions that at one time were largely deemed routine administrative kinds of things. And, you know, in North Carolina, they're they now have 10 days of early vo of early voting when 15 years ago they had zero. Um, and maybe that's the kind of perspective we ought to be looking at. Thank you so much, Rick Hassan and Derek Muller, for a remarkably civil and substantive debate about one of the most hotly contested constitutional and statutory questions of our time. Ladies and gentlemen, please join us for the next of our We the People constitutional podcasts. On behalf of the National Constitution Center, I'm Jeffrey Rosen. I know you've been bombarded recently by my reading ads for mattresses and razors. Well, the truth is that despite our mandate from Congress, which you know I love to recite, the National Constitution Center is a private nonprofit. We receive little government support, and we rely entirely on the generosity of people around the country who are inspired by our nonpartisan mission of constitutional education. So please consider becoming a member of the National Constitution Center. To support nonpartisan debate and education, including this great We the People podcast series. To become a member and learn more about thrilling member benefits, visit constitutioncenter.org slash membership. That's constitutioncenter.org slash membership.